Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 12, Original Sin. Two new words have recently come into existence with regards to our politics, and they are moderates and extremists. These words have a specific relation to time, and they therefore will change with time. The extremists of today will be moderates tomorrow, just as the moderates of today were extremists yesterday. We are extremists today, and our sons will call themselves extremists and us moderates. Every new party begins as extremists and ends as moderates. The sphere of practical politics is not unlimited. We cannot say what will or will not happen a thousand years hence. Perhaps during that long period, the whole of the white race will be swept away in another glacial period. We must therefore study the present and work out a program to meet the present condition. So that quote comes from 1907 from an Indian nationalist named Tilak. And uh, I think it's pretty relevant today considering this, the, the, the events we've seen just since the last time we recorded. Uh, stuff was kind of getting started last week and now we've got the Minneapolis uh, City Council defunding their police force. We've got you know stuff happening all across the country. The, the protests are continuing. I saw today that Gone with the Wind is being taken off HBO Max. So uh, it feels like a, a little bit of a different world even since last time we talked. Oh, it sure does, Josh. And by the way, welcome everyone to episode 12. I, you know, participated myself in a, a protest march here locally uh, a couple days after that last episode. And, you know, one of the things I was really struck with was the generational component to it. And I love that that quote because that you opened with because it does suggest a kind of, oh, I don't know, would you call it a, a progression of viewpoints, uh, maybe um, some sort of uh, evolution of viewpoints. And and many of the signs and the statements and chants and such that uh, some of the younger protesters were using, you know, really reflected a new, uh, a new line, I think you could say, a new line in the sand, you know, regarding uh, policing or the, you know, the, the nature of authority and that sort of thing. From what even, you know, a protest of a generation ago uh, might have. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a great message, and I think there's no question that today this episode, you know, has been inspired by that kind of uh, what advancing or evolving viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like we are being like everybody else being swept along by events, you know, and so we want to not just keep up with you know these ideas we had about what we wanted to do. We want to again, as we said last week, we want to continue to be relevant and speak to what's happening in the world today um, because. It, it almost feels, I think, feel this way about a lot of stuff right now, where, where things that I normally would have done just seem, just don't seem as relevant. I think mm-hmm. of, in music in particular, because I listen, tend to, when I'm in my office, be listening to music, and I have all these records that I just, they don't feel like I should be listening to them right now. They don't speak to the moment enough. And so I'm really trying to find stuff that, you know, whether or not it's political explicitly or more just um, kind of political, you know, in the background, it doesn't have to mention Trump, it doesn't have to mention current current stuff, but it speaks to our current times. That's what I'm, I'm gravitating to right now, because everything else just feels like 
well, what's the why am I, what's the point of listening to this? It doesn't speak to anything that's going on. So it's it's a it's a kind of holistic mm-hmm. set of changes that are happening right now, and and it's uh, again we're being swept along by those. Changes. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you've had to put your new kids on the block albums aside, but you know you'll get you'll get back to those. Um. Yeah, they just just don't feel the <laughs> don't feel the same as they as they did to me. <laughs> you and I talked about some of the uh, statements that we've seen, you know, among uh, other places and on protester signs and such. And I know one that we both, you know, really were struck by was was that which said a system cannot fail those it was never designed to protect. And I thought, you know, that that was a statement that kind of exemplifies what we're saying about a new a new line in the sand, if you will, in, in, in terms of the contest between those who are protesting and, and those who are ostensibly in authority. A system cannot fail those it was never designed to protect, which is really a different kind of statement than one that uh, maybe calls for piecemeal reforms, uh, you know, fixing the system, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that, you know, really that's, that kind of stuff is why I thought of that, that quote from Talak that we began with is because you know, these things that have been out there, they've been around, but like you wouldn't say that in polite company necessarily is now there's stuff that's being said by people all across the uh, the country right now. And it's a very different way of looking at the, the problems of this country, really the problems of the world is we got to understand that a lot of what is happening now is not coincidental. Well, you, you made this point last week, I think, about uh, our chancellor talking about, um, you know, the, the murder of, of George Floyd being senseless. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot over the past week, and it's it's so true that when something's senseless, it doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense because our entire structure, the entire system we live in is built on the policing, as you're going to talk about, the policing of black bodies, the policing of, um, of, of certain communities and not other communities. Unfortunately, the, the murder of George Floyd makes too much sense. It's tragic, of course. It's horrific, of course. But it makes total sense within the sweep of American history. And really, if we want to go even further, and I'll get into this in, in, in a bit, in the structure of kind of the global capitalist system that's come about over the past few centuries. Yeah, I don't think it's too much to say that it was utterly predictable. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be a great prognosticator to predict police violence against black bodies. Uh, we have no shortage of even recent examples for that. But you know, it does lead us to to wonder, you know, what are we to make of this, you know, of this this moment and this particular standoff that 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 we're seeing, you know, as as historians in particular, I, I you and I were talking a bit about some of what we've seen in, in on the journalism side, for example, you know, where some uh, very specific kinds of reporting, you know, going all the way back a few years now to, say, the Ferguson protests uh, in Missouri. Uh, and, and certainly those since then, the Black Lives, the emergence of Black Lives Matter has changed one element of how journalism responds to telling these stories. And we've both seen in, you know, in, in recent days, a lot of talk about, you know, where where do we stand with the old trope of objectivity? You know, on, on the one hand, a kind of neutral observation of what's ha- happening and a more engaged, more one might say, you know, morally credible account of what's happening. It's such an important issue, and it's something that's been kind of bubbling under the surface for a long time. It seems to be a very generational thing as well, um, in that kind of uh, the older consumers of news have this this idea of 
the news as being something that's that's presented objective uh, objectively that there's some middle that you have to take and and reporters are not supposed to take sides and they're just supposed to you know you, the, the way it's often talked about is both mm-hmm. sidesism it's mm-hmm. become a, a a popular way of thinking about it that you've got to talk about this point of view and that point of view but the reporter and the story never actually says which view is supported by facts which story is true or not true it just takes this middle ground and it's in its own way, that objectivity or that illusion of objectivity is ex- itself ideological, right? Mm-hmm. That by not taking a side, it is taking a side, which is that there's no truth, there's no meaning, there's no morality, there's just this bland centrism that doesn't speak to anything that's actually happening. Oh, you're absolutely right. Listen, you know, no matter how neutral we may wish to proclaim these stories, they're never neutral in that sense. Decisions, as you say, always have to be made about perspective and which facts get uh, from the story, get into the telling of it. And I really like what you're saying about that, you know, that sort of, you know, rejecting of what is sometimes called both sidesism, you know, the both sides journalism, which many regard now, especially younger journalists, you know, engaged in these stories, regard as a failed experiment. You know, we uh, both know about the story of, of Wesley uh, Lowry, who was for a number of years a Washington Post reporter, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who reported on the events in Ferguson, for example. Well, you know, Wesley Lowry left the Post because his editor was giving him so much heat. A very well-respected and renowned editor of the Post was giving him a lot of heat about his his tweeting on the side, you know, and his forwarding of his own views apart from the stories he was writing. And you know, Lowry responded essentially by saying, well, then I don't I don't need to work here. You know, he felt that it had become untenable to stay at the post. And uh, as he he himself said that, quote, both sides, journalism is a failed experiment. We need to rebuild our industry as one that operates from a place of moral clarity. So, yeah, I know that has uh, you and I thinking, Josh, about how our podcast and our telling of the historical stories uh, should respond in kind. Yeah, absolutely. I always think, you know, you you talked, we've talked a lot about this, that, you know, the old kind of uh, uh, evening news um, system was you'd have <laughs> voices of the left and voice of the right, and the right would be like these hardline ideologues, and then the, the, the voice of the left would be Sam Don- Donaldson, right? So just like a, just a reporter, just a guy. Um, right. And so you get this, it, you know, this both sidesism in in many ways ends up favoring the conservative conservative view because, um, well, for, for, for a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons is that it's so hard to get a legitimate voice of the left at all. <laughs> yeah, these are such important issues to be discussing right now. And, and I think that this should be clear if you listen to our podcast at all, but uh, you will always know what our perspectives are. There will be no question as to what we think about things. Uh, we make no claims to objectivity, but we do, I, I believe, um, have kind of a moral center that we're trying to present here um, and that, that uh, will, will never be hidden under this guise of, of objectivity. So as we move on, what we want to do is is talk about a kind of broader historical context for what we're seeing in our country and our world today, um, because so much of what we're seeing is not just the result of, you know, the past few decades of history, the past few centuries of history, but literally thousands of years of history reaching back to the beginnings of quote-unquote civilization, um, that we're still in many ways the heirs of the, the challenges of 
large complex societies. And as we look into these complex societies, we can maybe get some insight into what we're going to call the original sin of modern civilizations, and that's race. I mean, this is a bewilderingly large historical topic. For those who think that somehow race doesn't have a history, you know, it's just part of human nature or something. Uh, no, race has, has a history, and it's a bewilderingly large and and constantly uh, you know changing uh, history in in human affairs but a guy we like who sort of takes on that challenge of the big picture view and provides an accessible entry point into our discussion today uh, is the uh, Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari whose book Sapiens was enjoying good buzz for the last several years on bestseller lists and such uh, and Harari really does provide, and this grew out of his own teaching of world history, by the way, but provides that that big picture view that you can just kind of walk right into in a kind of intuitive sense, begin to understand the historical nature of these things. And one of the quotes he offers in his book, uh, Sapiens, that helps us with this is in regard to how large, complex societies themselves first came to be in human history. Uh, he says, scholars know of no large society that has been able to dispense with discrimination altogether. So variously defined, discrimination was itself part and parcel of those large, more complex societies that humans began to form about 5,000 uh, years ago. And, and as we're going to talk here in segment two, Harari wants you to know that there was nothing especially natural about those large societies. Mankind had lived, after all, for you know a couple hundred thousand years or more in very small kind of uh, what we sometimes call tribal bands or hunter-gatherer bands uh, before you know, embarking on this new career in history of the large, complex society. And so there was nothing particularly natural about that, according to, to Harari. You know, it grew from the, the agricultural revolution, the ability to feed more people, more condensed populations in tighter spaces. But as he points out, and as you can comment on, you know, these large complex societies were ambitious undertakings and they required certain codes of behavior if they were going to be, uh, be viable. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important point to, to, to get to, because as you pointed out, Human history is is fairly short, and the history of humans living in large, complex societies is, is much, much shorter. And so I think we sometimes make the mistake of assuming that what we've done since we've uh, begun to conglomerate into these societies of thousands and tens of thousands and millions is somehow natural to humans, when in, re in, in reality, a lot of the way that humans behave and interact and kind of deal with the environment and, and the world around them is a result of this process of quote-unquote civilization, this process of living in large groups, which creates so many challenges uh, beyond which hunters and gatherers or foragers used to have to deal with. And of course, there's environmental challenges, but you know we want to talk about the social issues here, really, because part of the big challenge of living in these large societies is that more so than, than was ever possible in, in small groups of hunters and gatherers, uh, large societies involve lots of meetings between strangers. When you live in a city or a town or a, a society of, of thousands, you're going to come across people that you don't know, that you have no prior knowledge of. And that creates the potential for tension. It creates the potential for violence. It creates the potential for, for 
all sorts of kind of social problems. And so what Harari is going to argue is that one of the innovations that societies make as they, they turn towards greater complexity and particularly greater population is hierarchy. Hierarchy probably doesn't really exist in a formal sense in smaller, more simple societies. Now, certainly you might have you know, an elder, you might have somebody who, um, who has some greater prestige because of, you know, their spiritual connections or they're good, a, a good hunter or they're a good um, kind of mediator, but not strict hierarchy. Uh, once you get to these large complex civilizations with all these meetings between strangers, though, hierarchy now becomes important. And so what Harari is going to argue is that hierarchy emerged for a simple and practical reason, and that is they uh, enable, and I'm quoting now, quote, they enable complete strangers to know how to treat one another without wasting the time and energy needed to become personally acquainted. And so once you have hierarchy, and the hierarchy is symbolized through all kinds of visual cues, when you're walking down the street and you encounter somebody, you know something about them already. Uh, you have some sense of how you're supposed to treat them. You have some sense of what's appropriate for how they address you. Um, and it doesn't get rid of tension, certainly, uh, but it does it does reduce maybe the amount of tension, the amount of potential problems that come from these simple meetings between strangers. Yeah, that's that's well said. And I think, you know, as Harari wants us to understand these hierarchies, he calls them imagined hierarchies because again there was nothing essentially natural they had to be created like like you say josh from those rudimentary forms of authority in smaller societies to now will become elaborate and codified and entrenched uh forms of authority and and hierarchical you know divisions stratified divisions along the way but the interesting thing you know about these is that they take on the uh, gloss of timelessness. You know, he, he says, another quote, it's an iron rule of history that every imagined hierarchy disavows its fictional origins and claims to be natural and inevitable. Yeah, that's, that's such a great way of putting it. And um, now I just want to clarify something because we both use, use this term natural and he used it as well. But he, he makes the point at, at somewhere in the book that Anything humans do is natural, right? By definition, if we can do it, it's it's part of, of nature. But there are learned behaviors and there are kind of innate behaviors. And what he's, he's kind of saying is that that hierarchy itself is not an innate thing. It's not something that we, you know, emerge from the womb and un understand hierarchy altogether, uh, immediately. Hierarchy is something that is learned as we go through the social conditioning of growing up from, from babies to, to children to adults. And so much of what we consider kind of natural to human society is in fact learned behavior. Um, and that's relevant because one of the most significant learned behaviors in the world today is this learned behavior of race or uh, the idea of race, which is clearly an invented tradition as Harari would suggest, and yet is one that has, as you were saying, a history. It's not something that's inborn. It's not something we, we understand from birth. It's something that is taught by our parents, but more so, I think, and, and more importantly, by the society itself. As you were saying earlier, um, there's a system that exists, and that system is going to put across certain ideas. And if you're paying attention, those ideas are going to get through to you. And it takes a conscious effort to resist those kind of ideas, to push back against those sort of ideas, to understand the origins of those ideas. And that's part of what we want to discuss as we move forward. 
Yeah, and it's so key, I think, to our own analysis today that, you know, our listeners understand that from a historical perspective, those invented hierarchies and, and the values that are constructed by those who occupy the most exalted positions of authority in those hierarchies, that is, we'll call them the haves, uh, the value system that the haves create uh, are themselves predicated upon the preservation and enforcement of their authority for the most part. Uh, in other words, it's not a coincidence that something like race, a construct that has to be invented in effect, uh, is associated or put to work in those hierarchies. And so that's really a, a key connection there for us today uh, between the uh, values that are created and the the, uh, the privileged elites, the haves, if you will, of the hierarchical societies, uh, the benefit from them. And and so I'm going to leave it here once more to our friend Yuval Harari uh, to bridge us into the next segment. Harari writes, that is one good reason to study history, since the biological distinctions between different groups of homo sapiens are in fact negligible, Biology can't explain the intricacies. We can only understand those phenomena by studying the events, circumstances, and power relations that transformed figments of imagination into cruel and very real social structures. Some things you just can't leave in the past They follow you home like skinny dogs separated from the pack Toss another bone in the valley, they gnash Toss another bone in the valley, they gnash One of the, the great things about the past few weeks is just how many people have been sharing literature and sharing books that talk to our present situation. I, I, I know a lot of people, particularly white people, are realizing that it's it's on them to, to learn about the context of what's happening now. Um, and so we've seen... You know, Ibram Kendi's Stand from the Beginning, uh, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, uh, So You Want to Talk About Race by uh, Ijeoma Aluo, all particularly shared uh, by people who, are, or who have read them and want other people to, to experience them. People have been, you know, asking for recommendations for this kind of stuff. And it's really been an amazing example of how, you know, to a certain extent, we got to educate ourselves about, about these issues. So what, what I want to just note then is that our, our discussion that's happening now is not meant to supersede those readings, it's not meant to overwhelm them, but just to add a different element to them. We want to give a kind of global and, and historical account of the story of race to make sense of this so that when you're reading these books, you'll have a, a broader context for, for how these things came about in the first place. Um, what I'm going to try to do then is talk about this global story of race. I want to connect it to slavery. I want to connect it to, to capitalism. And this basically represents my own synthesis of lots of different material. Uh, but I will try to note my sources when appropriate. So two ideas that, that I think I, I hear too often, I would say, are some versions of, and you mentioned this already, but every society has been racist. I've heard that a lot. And that, that I, you know, I think is often used as a defense. Well, since every society has been racist, then who are we to, to stand up against racism? It's just part of the structure and it's going to always be there. So what's the point? The other thing that you often see or, or here, rather, is some version of slavery had, has always existed. Um, as we were talking about earlier, you know, human history is, is longer than we sometimes realize. It doesn't just go back 10,000 years to agriculture. It doesn't just go back 5,000 years 
to civilization that goes back 250,000 years, maybe, uh, as, as far as 300,000 years. Um, and to say always then is uh, not particularly accurate. Um, that the latter statement about slavery is often used, by the way, to make a triumphal case for American progress and American exceptionalism. Well, slavery has always existed, and since we got rid of it, therefore, that's a sign of progress. I call it the Sean Willens argument, by the way, uh, because he makes that case, I think, in his letter about the 1619 Project. Yeah, it's very, it's very self-congratulatory. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it, it feeds this idea of progress. And I, I've made this point before, but it's, it's so annoying to talk about this system that came into existence because of the actions of these societies, but also give credit to those societies for, at a certain point, uh, ending those 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 systems mm-hmm. like slavery. So uh, yeah, we don't get to pat ourselves on the back for ending the system that we ourselves created. Um, of course, you can't <laughs> well, end something that doesn't exist, right? So uh, so let's just not make the thing exist in the first place. Then we can pat ourselves on the back. You know, as as we were talking about with with Ferrari, clearly prejudice has existed within and among human societies for at least as long as recorded history. But you can imagine that even for you know the the smaller societies of hunters and gatherers that. They had their own prejudices uh, based around the way their group did things versus the way other groups did things. But I want to make the case that prejudice is not the same thing as race, as racism. That racism is a type of prejudice, but it's a specific type of prejudice and one that emerges in the relatively recent past. And just to clarify, when when I think about race, um, what I'm thinking about and racism is not just um, a prejudice based on skin color. But it's a form of prejudice that's based around the idea that, that human groups have inherent biological differences from each other. Um, and that racism then proposes that those, those differences, which are inborn in the, these ideas of race, uh, also mark certain populations as inferior or superior. So it's a specific idea in my mind rather than just color prejudice, although color prejudice is obviously a huge part of the way this is understood. All right, so making this point about race not always ex- uh, having existed, I want to quote from a uh, African-American classicist, uh, Frank Snowden Jr. So he's writing about the ancient world. And, and so he's an historian, I think, at Howard University, or was late historian from Howard University. He writes a book called Before Color Prejudice, The Ancient View of Blacks. And it, it kind of sums up what I was just saying. He says, quote, The ancient world did not make color the focus of rational sentiments or the basis for uncritical evaluations. The ancients did accept the institution of slavery as a fact of life. They made ethnocentric judgments of other societies. They had narcissistic canons of physical beauty. The Egyptians distinguished between themselves, the people, quote unquote, and outsiders, and the Greeks called foreign cultures barbarians, yet nothing comparable to the virulent color prejudice of modern times existed in the ancient world. You can imagine, you know, a patrician landowner in the Roman Empire looking out over his vast latifundia, latifundium, his vast estate. Mm -hmm. And, plantation? Yes, plantation. <laughs> uh, and that estate would have been worked by a mix of people. Slavery was a very big element of Roman society. Uh, at, at times, pr- perhaps 10% of the entire workforce of the Roman Empire was enslaved. But the enslaved population was a varied population. So this landowner might look out and see enslaved Germanic peoples, enslaved Iberians, enslaved Celts, enslaved North Africans, enslaved Arabs, and many others along with that. That landowner then that patrician would have a hard time making any single generalization about that group of labors. The only thing that linked them together was that they largely came from beyond the borders of Roman civilization. 
So while slavery exists in the Roman Empire, while slavery is a horrible institution wherever it exists, it was not a race-based slavery and therefore did not lead to these racial understandings of human difference. So, you know, that's going back a few thousand years, but to a point where we have slavery, but where racial understandings of difference are not there. So how do we go from these kind of ethnocentric, civilizational, cultural notions of human difference to racial ideas of human difference? And that story largely involves the advent of the transatlantic slave trade from West Africa to the Americas, and then the later rise of European imperialism on a large scale as well. The real spark then for the emergence of modern racial ideas was the increasing intensity and scale of the transatlantic slave trade. Prior to the mid-17th century, when you looked around the colonial societies in the Americas, what you found was a variety of experiments with different labor systems. Um, so, you know, you've talked about this before, but you're going to have in some colonies a mix of indentured servants, sometimes enslaved indigenous people, and then often a mix uh, mixed into that would be some West African enslaved people as well. From about the mid-17th century, though, those varied systems begin to go away. And increasingly, from about the 1640s, 1650s, what you're going to find is that more and more, a higher and higher percentage of the labor force in the Americas, the enslaved labor force, was coming from these West African slave markets. And this would ultimately create societies throughout the Caribbean, the Atlantic coast of South America, and the southern parts of what would become the United States, that were really unlike any that had ever existed in human history. And I think this is really important to understand, is that we can say that slavery has existed for thousands of years, or it's an ancient institution, this kind of stuff, but there had never really been slave societies like those we see in the Americas. Slave societies were the vast majority of people. In some parts of the, the plantation colonies of, of the Americas, you might have you know, 85, 90% of the population being enslaved people. And that is just really unheard of in human history. As I said, the Roman Empire, which itself was a heavily slave-based society, maybe 10% of the workforce was enslaved people. And so on the one hand, you have just the scale and the scope of, of, of slavery in terms of the total population of enslaved people in these larger uh, societies. But the other thing that, that obviously is important here is that at a certain point, virtually all that labor comes from West Africa, comes from various parts of West Africa, I should say, um, and therefore, all the labor shares the fact that their skin is darker than the skin of those who are the overseers and the owners of the land and therefore also the people. So if Ferrari is right about the usefulness of hierarchy, then the Americas become in some ways the purest example of this. One where those with light skin, regardless of wealth, could occupy the upper strata of the social structure and those with darker skin the lowest. And I, sh I should point out, you know, the idea of people with light skin occupying the upper strata at the very least, what that meant is as a person who, who identifies as white, you could imagine yourself part of the power structure regardless of whether you were actually in that power structure. This is one of the, the, the really important aspects of race is that it cuts across class lines within white society, right? And there's an argument to be made, in fact, that one of the reasons that race is such an important development in the Americas is because it, it is going to cut against the potential for rebellions that cut across those racial lines, right? that poor whites and poor blacks might understand themselves as sharing a common uh, uh, exploitation and work against the slave owners, work against the, uh, the elite within their society. But race, uh, once people buy into it, cuts against that. And so what you end up with is then, again, these societies where you have whiteness and blackness really defining a social structure and defining a power structure. And 
there's a, a historian from, from Penn University, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Mia Bay, and she's noted that the situation that emerged in the Americas was instrumental in the emergence of racial ideology because, quote, that's part of where the idea of race comes from. It's just the tendency for people to see existing power relationships as having some sort of natural quality to them. So in other words, when people observe these societies and they observe the fact that those with power and wealth have lighter skin and those who are primarily enslaved have darker skin, instead of trying to understand the reasons for this, the context for this, the history of this, what they increasingly come to, to believe is that there's a natural reason for this, that there's something about those people that separates them from these other people. And so where the Roman landowner would look out into the state and see a diverse group of enslaved people who would be hard to generalize across, Thomas Jefferson, for instance, and men like him, could look out into their plantations to make a very simple observation. Those who looked like him lived in the comfort of the manor house, and those who didn't did the labor in the fields. And so this paragon of enlightened rationalism, instead of actually being rational about this and trying to understand the circumstance, uh, makes this very uh, simple observation and generalization. And that's where we get to race. Now, the impact of this new system of slavery didn't just impact those in the plantations, whether the owners or the overseers or the labor, but in many ways, the entire structure of thought and action across the entire Atlantic world. Those in the Americas, those in Africa, certainly, those in Europe as well. It's often been noted that slavery is the original sin in the formation of the United States, but I want to make a broader case that the slave trade itself was the original sin of the capitalist world system, because whatever it touched became corrupted. I want to quote here from a historian named Felipe Fernandez Armesto, who says, quote, Slavery nourished its own forms of lies and cant. Racism, which depicted blacks as inherently inferior to whites, or claimed that they were better off enslaved than at home. It corrupted owners by giving them power over the lives and bodies of their slaves and encouraging them to abuse it. It corrupted shippers who overcrowded their cargoes to maximize profits. It kept black and white people in mutual fear and loathing while trapping colonial governments in policies of inhuman rage and oppression. It let loose predatory gangs of slavers and bounty hunters. It encouraged war in Africa between predator states that profited from the trade and their victims. Now, I would add to that, um, and by the way, that statement shows up in his textbook, Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Pretty extraordinary thing to show up in a textbook, which are usually so bland, but, um, but a, a really amazing statement about the true cost of slavery. Well, maybe he wasn't uh, being objective, Josh. No, right? Yeah, yeah. He wasn't just presenting the, the both sides of slavery. Slavery was bad, but no, he, he was making it pretty clear there. And I would just add to what he said that um, the other effect of slavery, one that he doesn't mention, is on the consumers of plantation goods in Europe. Because it forced these consumers of goods like sugar and cotton to become complicit in the system every time they sweetened their tea or got dressed in the morning. The British abolitionist William Fox hammered this point home in a 1791 pamphlet where he explained to British consumers of sugar that, quote, if we purchase the commodity, we participate in the crime. The slave dealer, the slaveholder, and the slave driver are virtually agents of the consumer and may be considered as employed and hired by him to procure the commodity. In every pound of sugar used, we may be considered as consuming two ounces of human flesh. As he sweetens his tea, let him say, as he truly may, this lump cost the poor slave a groan, and this a bloody stroke with a cart whip. So a powerful statement, particularly in 1791, that really speaks to a lot of our current condition, where being a consumer now 
is fraught with all these moral implications. And, you know, in the 1790s, this is a new thing, right? Not being connected to where your stuff comes from directly is a new thing that hasn't been around for that long, really. Um, and so the idea that, that there's a moral choice to be made about what you consume is something that's kind of just emerging. And, and William Fox speaks to that point extremely eloquently. And his pamphlet actually was very popular. It sold 70,000 copies, but it in the end did little to slow the consumption of sugar, meaning that more and more consumers were both aware of the human cost of their commodities and ultimately were okay with those costs. That in the end, you know, the fact that eating that sugar uh, led to the, led the, the poor slave a groan and a bloody stroke with a cart whip was less important than having your tea sweetened in the morning or afternoon. This entire system then could only work if the shippers, the overseers, the owners, the merchants, the state, and the consumers themselves could force themselves to believe, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, that, quote, the blacks are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. That this compromise that you're making, that the suffering of others is worth it for your tea or for your cotton, only becomes acceptable if you can say, well, they might suffer, but that's what they're born to do. Right? Some people are born to rule and some people are born to be ruled in, this, in the, the famous 19th century saying. And so the emergence of race serves as this, uh, this crucial role of justification and legitimization in the plantations of the Atlantic world, but also increasingly in the European empires that grew to unprecedented size in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Much like slavery and the slave trade, these empires were justified in ideas of racial superiority that similarly corrupted those who took part in it. I want to quote here from one of my favorite people to quote, Amy Césaire, the great Martinican uh, poet, scholar, politician, philosopher, who says, quote, colonization dehumanizes even the most civilized man. Colonial activity, colonial enterprise, colonial conquest, which is based on contempt for the native and justified by that contempt, eventually tends to change him who undertakes it. The colonizer, in order to ease his conscience, gets into the habit of seeing the other man as an animal accustoms himself to treating him like an animal and tends objectively to transform himself into an animal. And that quote makes me think of that officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck, basically choking the life out of him like an animal. Mm -hmm. So ultimately race performs a function in these societies and if it didn't perform that function then it wouldn't exist. The previously mentioned Ibram Kendi has this quote, and I don't think this is in um, stamped, I think this is from a, a speech he gave, but or talk he gave, he says, quote, the actual foundation of racism is not ignorance and hate, but self-interest, particularly economic and political and cultural. This idea that it's this, you know, these poor white Trump voters that are the source of race, and they, they're, they're racist because they're ignorant, doesn't really hold that much of a candle. Race exists because it serves a function for the larger society, because it provides people with tangible benefits. And if it stops providing those benefits, maybe it would, uh, you know, race would cease to have a function, it would go away. But as long as people see that their livelihoods are tied up with the continuance of these racial ideas, it's gonna be very hard to get rid of those racial ideas. And so if we're ever going to break out of this, we have to do these kind of uh, examinations of history to see how they came about, why they came about, and what we can do to get rid of them. Well said, my friend. You know, I think what you're what you're calling for here is a, a historical investigation, maybe a historical interrogation of these systems of oppression that often pass themselves off 
as timeless and immutable and just on some level natural, uh, but which in fact aren't. They're, hi they're highly contingent, highly constructed, and we can often find their moments even of construction by looking closer into the historical record. That's absolutely right. And I, you know, I, I go back to the point from Mia Bay that a lot of the problem is that far too often we do the easiest thing, which is just observe society as it is and assume that because it's this way, this is the way it has to be. There's some reason for this that's, that's quote unquote natural, that's innate. But when we do this historical uh, study, when we look into this process, what we see is that there's a series of choices being made. There's a series of circumstances happening that lead to things being this way. That, you know, I think if you want to take an optimistic view of it, you can make the case that if we constructed this thing, that we can also destruct it, right? That anything we build, mm -hmm. we can take down. Uh, but we have to understand this as something constructed, um, as a system that's been constructed before we can figure out how to, how to, uh, how to tear it down. Absolutely, uh, which is why ultimately we consider our project to be a fairly optimistic one. Um, the story we're telling ultimately does need not be a tragedy after all, if that process of, of reconstruction, let's call it, uh, or deconstruction, if you prefer, uh, you know, is, is carried out with a kind of, you know, moral clarity, uh, you know, projecting to the world we want to live in. Look, I, you know, I, I want to, here's what I'm going to do in my little bit today. I want to, I want to interrogate America. <laughs> you know, I, I want to look into this original sin a little bit more closely to see what we might find to not only understand where we are, but how we might get to the place we want to be. And I was thinking about Donald Trump's threat, you know, this past uh, week or so to order active duty military into the streets of the nation's capital and elsewhere, active duty military to, quote, dominate the protesters and reclaim the streets. And it was that word, Josh, dominate, that really resonated with me as a historian because it has so much historical resonance. You know, it goes back to the beginning of England's imperial project, as you were talking about the rise of European colonies in the Western Hemisphere. You know, it was during the reign of Elizabeth I that the English proclaimed dominion right? Part of that same word root Donald Trump used. Mm -hmm. Dominion of the English imperial project. You know, they first tried it in, in Ireland uh, and then would soon find their colonies established in, in North America. But it pays to remember that this word that was so confidently projected and, uh, you know, proclaimed as, as a badge of pride, really, for the English imperial project, dominion, or for that matter, tr Trump's uh, dominate comes from the, the Latin root uh, dominus that meant literally lord or master. Lord or master. Very subtle. Yeah, right. Um, but they weren't embarrassed by it, you know, as we might be tempted to think today, because again, it was seen as a kind of natural assertion, if you will, of, of a country's... Um, you know, ultimate claim on a greater destiny of some sort. But, you know, I'm persuaded to think, and I'm, I'm going to put up on our website this amazing portrait of Elizabeth I that was meant to convey, and I know you've, you've seen it before, where her hand is resting on the globe, uh, yeah. and behind her there's a scene of England's uh, defeat of the Spanish Armada. I mean, it just, it, it oozes this idea of dominion, right? 
Um, but I'm persuaded to think, you know, that that therefore the resulting project of establishing colonies and ultimately embracing slavery, that these were two concomitant parts, you know, two essential parts of that imperial dominion, uh, what uh, the American historian Wendy Warren has called a deadly symbiosis between colonization and slavery that she said, quote, fostered the European colonization of all the Americas. And uh, what I would say is that, you know, from this will evolve the construct of race, as you described it, uh, in its particular American incarnation as we, we know it today. You know, the short version, I suppose, historically, is that racism, that is the, the set of behaviors and uh, assumptions and values that are pre predicated on that idea of, of race, that constructed value, that racism, the resulting behavior, will metastasize uh, throughout the colonies first and then in the national period, the, the growing territorial expanse of the United States, that racism uh, will itself grow right along with it as an inherent value uh, built in, if you will, into the blocks of power, the building blocks of power and privilege that are fashioned into that hierarchy that we were talking about, you know, and, and that comes to be depicted in, in racial and, and specifically color terms uh, as white over black. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than all that, of course, but that'll serve, I think, as a basic you know, lens through which to view the story. And we often tell the story, as I've said on other episodes, the familiar story of early America as a story of freedom. But what we're saying here today is that more properly, more truthfully, historically, it was designed by the British to be a story of dominion, which is very nearly the opposite. Uh, of freedom as, as a construct. So uh, as our friend Harari points out, in most cases, the hierarchy originated as the result of a set of accidental circumstances and was then perpetuated and refined over many generations as different groups developed different vested interests. So I, I, you were absolutely right, Josh, when you said that this whole business was really circumstantial historically. And I think that, you know, as we look to tell the story, to correct the story, to revise the story so that it explains where we are now in this historical moment, that that uh, turning point, you know, uh, that decision, as you pointed out, made somewhere in the middle of the 17th century, in the middle of the 1600s, a conscious decision to embrace slavery and, and West African slavery specifically, uh, that it really is going to lay down the historical channel that this nation has been living in uh, uh, ever since. It was, as you might say, a fateful decision, to say the least, but almost due entirely to kind of set of accidental circumstances. I mean, and I, I'm not going to go into the, you know, the granular details of this so much right now, but let's suffice it to say that things like the dwindling supply and increasingly expensive cost of Eng English indentured servants makes the turn toward West African slave markets uh, more cost-effective. Uh, 
um, you know, was also the, the growing involvement of the English and the African slave trade itself, which had been dominated by first the Portuguese and then the Spanish. You know, the English will create a corporation in the mid-1600s called the Royal African Company, which is given essentially a monopoly by the crown to trade in the lives and bodies of West African uh, enslaved people. Uh, and then, you know, especially in the early plantation colonies of, of the South that relied on cash crop, cash crop agriculture, you know, such as in Virginia, where you have the tobacco economy. And by the way, uh, you may know, Josh, uh, that to this day, the moniker Virginia is the old dominion. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the old dominion. But, you know, also in the northern colonies, when I say that, that slavery and race will metastasize, because for all kinds of other labor needs, I mean, consider in New York, for example, colonial New York, most of the infrastructure, most of the construction, including, by the way, the building of the literal wall on what came to be called Wall Street was carried out by enslaved African laborers. So what I want to suggest is that one of the most bitter and destructive legacies of this decision to opt for enslaved Africans as the front line of organized physical labor in colonial America, a decision that would see the African population in the English colonies grow from just a, really a few hundred before 1650 to half a million by 1776. Uh, that that basic uh, story of race as we know it in America was, was born. Uh, and it was born and inculcated to justify and defend, just as you said, and even enforce the authority and claims of those propertied interests, those haves at the top of the hierarchy, those slave-owning interests. And uh, this was not, you know, coincidental. That was the centrally designed purpose, I would argue, of that value system built around race. In other words, race was engineered as a construct, as an ideal invented, in other, word, in other words, uh, so that skin color would uh, symbolize, you know, any number of things, but, but that it would symbolize that basic divide in society between the haves and, and the have-nots. And, and surely it gets, it gets complicated. There's going to be a lot of racial mixing going on. We'd like to say it's as simple as a black-white issue, but really it's all shades uh, but the essential purpose then of race was to reconcile those shades so that there was no question as to which side of that color line one would fall, depending on their basic status. And, you know, we see this in those Virginia statutes, actual laws being written now in the mid-1600s that reference skin color, for example, in relation to various laboring requirements, uh, distinguishing between indentured servants, for example, uh, and the fairer-skinned laborers and those who would be deemed now servants for life and identified by color as non-white. And that along with this specific choice to define color in such a way, the tragic legacy then of what Trevor Noah lately has called the looting of the black body in America really begins in earnest. And a lot of it, and this is what I'm focusing on here now in this episode, a lot of that looting of the black body according to those codes of behavior defined by color and servitude 
now will concern themselves with systems of policing, the policing of black people and the enforcing of their status, in other words, as a subordinate population. And this has been going on now in America up to the present anyway for the last you know, 350 years since these color statutes were created. So yeah, the, that's sort of a, just the bare background, the crystallizing of color as a social and legal signifier in this system of enslavement enforced by elites, propertied elites, uh, will have grave uh, consequences, uh, including our own historical moment. And that the laws governing servitude based on complexion and color, you know, most importantly, enslavement itself now was going to be not a, a, a temporary designator, but in the regime of, of slavery as it evolves, rather a lifetime designator. That is a system of lifetime servitude and perhaps most perniciously, uh, and with respect to the black bodies, we'll see that the children born of enslaved mothers, whatever their complexion, uh, be they lighter skinned because it was a slave owner who uh, may have raped or otherwise taken full advantage of the servant status of a black enslaved woman, that the child now would be defined legally according to the status of the mother. So this sort of interplay between color and status will conspire to keep that basic dividing line really uh, hard and fast, you know, integrated into American society. Um, and it's a concept, let's be clear, a concept that is basically nailed down and made more or less universal in colonial America by the early 1700s. So these laws necessarily require the looting of the black body, as I say, most obviously in the form of the offspring. A child could be now claimed as property from the mother, but the mother herself, her own body being claimed as property and they're subject to um, you know, sexual privilege by the white slave owner. Uh, so a kind of double entitlement uh, to the woman's body, but also to that of her child, resulting now from this system, this tragic system that is so clearly defined in the legal statutes and in the, in the social mores and practices of early colonial America. So what do we want to say about it coming up to our own time? Well, this, this racial form of slavery would develop its own social and cultural codes, as I say, and, and rituals, uh, as we've pointed out already, to prescribe how people on both sides of the color line were supposed to act. And that's the part I call racism. You know, race is the construct. Racism is the verb of action that follows upon it, a way of behaving. Uh, what I like to call performance codes, you know, racial performance codes. And they are not neutral, not at all, and not from the beginning are they neutral. Uh, Harari makes an interesting point, uh, how these standards often orient around concepts of purity and pollution. Purity and pollution that, that uh, defined and restrict the outcast or outclass uh, along a familiar line of behavioral codes. Uh, you know, I have a letter. You mentioned Jefferson looking out from the veranda of Monticello. I have a letter where Jefferson 
is performing a kind of algebraic computation to figure just how long it would take, how many generations of white parentage it would take uh, for a person to be considered white rather than black. That is a race, racially mixed person, because as you know, uh, at least four of his own children were born of a slave mother at Monticello. So this kind of obsessive, almost fetishistic concern with color and the codes of behavior that come along with it, you know, really follow in short order. And again, that looting of the black body, further developing, you know, these prescribed uh, protocols and, and really all through uh, American history. But the one I want to focus on now, again, is the policing of the black body. You keep in mind that policing grows out of, out of this system of, of servitude of what were called slave codes and slave patrols and later in the municipal policing in, in racially mixed urban uh, metropolitan areas uh, it was the so-called slave patrols from the early 1700s uh, that arise almost simultaneously with this form of slavery uh, with an armed and invested policing power. Uh, and the justification was always very simple, right? Uh, you were enforcing racial order and preventing uprisings or rebellions on the part of the subordinate class. Now, it didn't always work. Sometimes you had those uprisings and, and rebellions. But what we saw always in their aftermath was a brutal, a swift and brutal and severe policing response to those who were judged responsible for the violation of those norms. Uh, just as we see in the protests today, a swift and often harsh or even brutal response by those policing the protesters. So I don't want that to be lost. You know, even the U.S. Constitution provided for this, Josh, uh, policing of black bodies, most obviously the fugitive slave provisions that empowered all white people to catch and return fugitive black bodies. But also, and this is not often rec recognized, the Second Amendment that's added to the Constitution, guaranteeing a, a well-regulated militia and famously the right to bear arms, was largely the result of Southern slave owners lobbying for an amendment that would give them the military power to put down slave rebellions. So the policing of slave uh, districts in the South, you know, necessitating that legal statute, that constitutional statute of the Second uh, amendment. So yeah, on the most basic level, the policing is carried out in the days of slavery from the overseer of the plantation whose authority to punish and punish severely was granted to the more uh, broader policing powers. And, and this is over 200 years now, unless we condense that, that period of time, 200 years of protocol and practice and codes of, of behavior centering around these twin concepts now of enslavement and color uh, sort of congealing in this notion of race. Now, Josh, let me give a tangible example for our listeners of this policing of the black body from a first-person perspective of a man enslaved in the American South. His name was Solomon Northrop, and his story, 12 Years a Slave, has been recently retold in the award-winning motion picture by the same name. Solomon Northrop was a free man of color living in New York when, in 1841, he was drugged and beaten by slave traders and sold into slavery. 
Eventually, he was sold again into the domestic slave trade and was transported to the deep south of Louisiana and kept enslaved on a plantation in the Louisiana Bayou. As he recounted in his memoir, he grew very familiar with a local system of policing designed to keep black people, enslaved people, under strict containment. On Bayou Bouffe, there was an organization of patrollers, he writes, whose business it is to seize and whip any slave they may find wandering from the plantation. They ride on horseback, headed by a captain, armed and accompanied by dogs. They have the right, either by law or by general consent, to inflict discretionary chastisement upon a black man caught beyond the boundaries of his master's estate without a pass, and even to shoot him if he attempts to escape. Each company has a certain distance to ride up and down the bayou. They are compensated by the planters who contribute in proportion to the, the number of slaves they own. The clatter of their horses' hooves dashing by can be heard at all hours of the night, and frequently they may be seen driving a slave before them or leading him by a rope fastened around his neck to his owner's plantation. Now, this is a stunning description of the historical origins of policing in America. And as it turns out, you know, even after the Civil War, even after the abolition of slavery, policing as it evolves, you know, policing as we regard it really has a shorter history than we might imagine. You know, it evolves pretty much as we understand it as a professionalized, you know, municipal and county governmental branch, taxpayer funded only in, in the 20th century. But it is rooted, make no mistake, policing is rooted in those forms of earlier policing. You know, according to uh, Chenjirai Kumeika, uh, a journalism professor at Rutgers University who's written about the history of policing, he says there's far more evidence to support the view that modern policing was invented to make sure that that social hierarchy remained intact. Uh, close quote. So let's call this strategy of policing that emerges out of the, the, the you know, the, the codes of, of the slave patrols as containment, you know, and, and for years, municipal police departments who had few of any black officers uh, throughout the, the cities of, of the country. I mean, clearly, you know, if you're talking about county sheriffs in the South and that sort of thing, there were no no black officers, but also in the northern uh, policing districts, very, very few black officers, where most cities instead, most municipal uh, municipalities develop policing practices designed to contain the violence that they imagine would be coming out of black ghettos, as they term them, and, and, and not to protect and serve, but essentially to maintain that policing mechanism of dominance. Of, of dominion, if you will, over these segregated communities. And so the looting of the black body continues right on into the 20th century in the Jim Crow South. Lynching and policing went hand in glove. That is the defiling of the black body by the lynch mob. Keep in mind that lynchers were never subject to arrest in the South and often enjoined with 
police powers, former police powers, even if unofficially, to make sure that there would be no prosecutions or anything like that. And when black people begin migrating in large numbers in the 20th century during the war years, especially World War I and World War II and the interwar years, what we call the Great Migration of Southern black people into Northern cities. Now, for the first time, large urban black populations of, uh, in the North giving rise to fears of unrest among uh, white propertied interests, whether it be in the form of labor strikes or as famously in World War II, the, the so-called Detroit riots where you had, you know, a, an attack by white workers in Detroit against black workers because of the federal injunction to integrate wartime industries. And those riots were quite bloody and, and the policing power cited you know, with the white rioters, it was only in uh, the U.S. Army actually was called in during World War II to Detroit to try and restore order. So it wasn't always just local policing efforts. Often the federal level, we see this, uh, you know, notoriously in the 1950s and 60s as J. Edgar Hoover's FBI institutes its own uh, proclaimed counterintelligence program, the so-called COINTELPRO initiative of the FBI, which will, among others, target black civil rights efforts, you know, that are perceived now as being somehow disruptive of civil order. Famously, you know, Hoover will um, eavesdrop uh, plant listening devices and eavesdrop on Martin Luther King's uh, motel bedrooms. And he will use what he considers to be damning information about uh, King's uh, extramarital uh, affairs to try and smear and ruin the reputation. If you, if you go on the Wikipedia site for COINTELPRO, you can see the letter that was written up, typed up by the FBI and made to appear to be from black opponents of Martin Luther King that uh, urges him to commit suicide rather than be outed as a hypocrite and vile character. I mean, it's really vile stuff. And, and I would encourage our listeners to take a look at it. Uh, but it suggests, again, how broad the policing of black bodies had become such that Hoover is putting microphones underneath King's uh, bedroom, you know, his, his bed, essentially, in his, his, uh, his hotel and motel rooms. Now, you know, having taught American history for a long, long time and confronted these these realities uh, as I outline them here, the, the tragic uh, nature of them, you know, it, it became clear to me that as, as a, a professor of history that I didn't want to simply get into the drumbeat of tragedy and oppression. Uh, not because it isn't there, it is. And we've only scratched the surface of that, I think, today. But rather because it tends to render one-dimensionally those who are the uh, recipients of that, that uh, oppression and that, that cruelty. In other words, uh, they become, in effect, objects only to exist for the violence, you know, of the propertied classes uh, in the ordering of that, that social order. But, you know, black people have never been one-dimensional in America. They are fully dimensional uh, human beings with lives and loves and stories and, you know, projects of their own from the days of slavery till now. And so, you know, I had to come to terms early on with how, how we tell this story that a truer and more morally committed history 
not an objective history, <laughs> but a truer and more morally committed history must acknowledge the agency of all peoples. And so I wanted to finish my bit today, you know, with with a story that that brings us back to that kind of moral center in it. And it begins a story that begins in and of itself just over 50 years ago in Oakland, California, uh, where a group of, of black men, local residents who are outraged by the unchecked violence of white policing against members of their community, uh, sat down together and issued a 10 point program the purpose of which they said was to build self-defense of black neighborhoods in America, including their own in Oakland. As they put it in unmistakable terms, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. So this was in 1966 in Oakland, California. And the two principal authors of that statement were Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, Young men who had grown up in Oakland and who had met one another while attending a local JC, Merritt College. And as they began to study the things that you were talking about, Josh, the broader history of colonialism and race and the slave trade and Africa and African history, they struck upon an idea to form a new, a new organization, a new party, as they called it, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And so right there in the title was this stated intention to now confront those policing powers that so long had presumed to loot the black body. They argued in unmistakable terms that black people represented a segregated and colonized population in the United States. Now, keep in mind, they were doing this at the same time. An unpopular imperial war was going on uh, with America in Vietnam and many of those decolonization movements were happening in Africa and elsewhere. And so they found an apt metaphor to refer to black people in America as a kind of colonized population. Remember, the country had also just experienced the civil unrest uh, focusing on issues of police brutality in Southern California during the so-called Watts riots the previous year. So yeah, the Panthers, as they came to be known, saw black communities in America as a colony and the police as an occupying army. And, a 1967 essay Huey Newton wrote, because black people desire to determine their own destiny, they are constantly inflicted with brutality from the occupying army embodied in the police department. There is a great similarity, he said, between the occupying army in Southeast Asia and the occupation of our communities by the racist police. So their main focus Clearly, to curb police brutality against African-Americans living in America, uh, but also more broadly to seek common cause, I think, with liberation movements globally. You know, they, they were responding very, very deliberately to the limitations of what they now saw as, as, as MLK's civil rights strategy in the northern cities, especially the, the nonviolent uh, program of, of Martin Luther King's civil rights integration efforts. You know, according to the L.A. Times, cities like Oakland, Los Angeles and Detroit seethed with injustice, much of it inflicted by white dominated police departments on minority communities. So Bobby Seale proclaimed the Black Panther Party a righteous revolutionary front against this racist, decadent capitalist system. And, and, and memorably, they even dressed differently. You talk about reclaiming the black body instead of suits and ties. 
they wore leather jackets. Partly because Huey Newton said most of the uh, the brothers he knew had a leather jacket, and so he called upon his his um, you know his friends and neighbors to to wear their leather jackets and to festoon with a black beret, which again bespoke a kind of um, you know international connection. I, I I think so. The reclaiming of the black body in the very appearance of the Panthers. Uh, it's according to a recent history, a comprehensive history of the Black Panthers, a work entitled Black Against Empire by Joshua Bloom and Waldo Martin, where they write the center of their politics was the practice of armed self-defense against the police. While revolutionary ideas could be easily ignored, widespread confrontations between young armed black people and the police could not. The Panthers' politics of armed self-defense gave them political leverage forcibly contesting the legitimacy of the American political regime, close quote. And one thing that, that uh, Newton and Seale discovered that would define them was that because of a, a loophole in California statute law, they realized they were not prohibited from carrying loaded weapons openly in public. And so one of their first tactics, the Black Panthers, that is, was to follow the police around Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco and the Bay Area and, and, and jumping out of their cars with guns drawn if the police made a stop of black drivers. What's the matter with you, Newton told one officer. You're supposed to be people enforcing the law and here you are ready to violate my constitutional rights. You can't have my gun. The only way you're going to get it is to try and take it from me. Not not objectivity in this case was <laughs> Huey Newton striving for, but an impassioned moral clarity. So yeah, in effect, the Black Panthers taking up arms and declaring themselves part of a global revolution American, uh, of, uh, against American imperialism. And uh, again, in the LA Times, a recent review article, for a few surreal months there in the late 60s, the newly uh, formed Black Panther Party challenged the police again and again, without a single shot being fired. Now, I have to finish. I it would be remiss if I didn't tell you that this terrified white California <laughs> and white, the white state legislature. Uh, they rushed to pass a bill called the Mulford Act that would close that loophole and make it illegal to carry firearms in public. As I told you, Josh, I remember as a kid in Berkeley and Oakland, the Bay Area, seeing the Black Panthers walking openly with their rifles and bullet belts. And uh, it was a, a striking image. And so when the Panthers heard that the legislature was trying to close that loophole, they, they drove up to Sacramento to pro protest passage of the bill. And they showed up at the state capitol uh, for a news conference carrying shotguns. <laughs> and, and the white governor at the time, uh, Ronald Reagan, who had campaigned, you know, on a tough on crime platform, uh, uh, basically put him into overdrive and, he, and, and quickly set about, you know, getting the law passed and signed. Uh, Reagan, a guy himself, no stranger to using policing power to employ both, uh, you know, both the local departments, even the state guard to contain civil disobedience and urban unrest in black neighborhoods. So yeah, he quickly signed that in, into law. But in some ways that just brought the Panthers greater attention. You know, said Eldridge Cleaver, uh, one of the leading members of the Panthers, a member and an author widely acclaimed for his commentary on black America and the work called Soul on Ice. By the way, a work he'd uh, written while he was in, incarcerated in Folsom State Prison. Uh, Cleaver said, 
In response to all this, I would love to sit around drinking wine, smoking pot, and making love to my wife, but I can't afford to be doing that while all of these pigs, meaning the police, all of these pigs are on the loose. So in effect, you might say, Josh, the Black Panther Party had now set itself up to become the uh, center of a self-styled revolutionary movement in America to police the police. Uh, I guess we could say of black bodies policing now the police. And they established a newspaper, uh, put out 537 issues of their own newspaper. They shifted their focus slightly to provide uh, social and community projects, free breakfasts memorably for children in urban areas. Uh, in 1969, every Panther chapter nationally organized community services, and it became part of the staple identity of Black Panther members na uh, nationwide. So from that local base in Oakland uh, to uh, its growth uh, by 1970, a nationwide movement with chapters and offices in 68 cities and a reputation uh, nationally. As you can imagine, the response uh, from the policing agencies uh, local, municipal, state, from the military uh, to the guard uh, to the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, the National Security and, and Agency, and most notably the FBI of J. Edgar Hoover, who proclaimed, by the way, Hoover did, the Black Panther Party without question the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. And you have to read on, friends and listeners, to find more of the truly vile and uh, cruel efforts undertaken by the government of the United States to diminish and demoralize and divide uh, the Black Panther specifically, but all sorts of, of movements in that era that were striving for racial justice and equality. And I think it's one of those hidden histories, really. Uh, you can find it now on Wikipedia. Just as I say, look up COINTELPRO, all one word, COINTELPRO, uh, and you'll start to see from the Freedom of Information Act the, the documents that have come forward now to reveal the full scope of the abuses of the policing power uh, in the United States ongoing uh, from the time of slavery right down to the George Floyd Protests. So this is a story, Josh, I see as being animated not by objectivity, but by the full moral commitment of telling the truth, a truth that must be told, a story that must be told if we are to advance beyond the grim confines of this, uh, this legacy. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a, a group more specifically engineered to terrify the white power structure than the, the Black Panthers. <laughs> but, you know, the thing that, that is so striking to me, there's so many things, but, you know, the militancy, all that kind of stuff is what gets gets so much of the attention. But the programs to just provide meals to poor children, you know, because it, it just speaks to the fact that how little their communities were being served by the people who were supposed mm -hmm. to be serving them, that they ultimately had to step in and do these things because nobody else was going to do them. And it was, of all the programs, that, that free those free breakfasts were one of the most successful things that the Black Panthers did. Um, so, uh, yeah, great to, to get that yeah. story because it, it's such a vital chapter in, in this, this larger story. And, and as you were saying, it also is the story of, of agency and, and it makes them the, the creators of their story rather than just victims or the oppressed of this of this power structure, they were doing this um, this amazing stuff to try to get their voices heard. Black star keeps shining.
take the black star line Ride on home, we take the black star line Ride on home, we take that black star line Ride on home, we take that black star line And that's where I actually want to end because one of the, the big questions um, that's come up in these past few weeks is, well, why is this happening now? Why is, why is this movement emerging now? And for a lot of African-Americans, you know, we, we've heard people say at, at one of the protests we went to, um, a speaker said, we've been shouting for decades about this stuff and nobody listened. And there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one reason I think is just the, the, the prevalence of these acts of abuse being filmed has brought it into the homes of, of white people more than ever has before. Um, it does obviously bring up this question. I mean, there's there's gotta be hundreds, if not thousands of George Floyds out there who suffered the same fate, but because there was no cameras, there's no camera phones, it was just lost in the dustbin of history. It never got out of the neighborhood, so to speak. And the other thing I wanna, I wanna point out is that one of the reasons why it took so long for this to come out is because Ultimately, white people and black people deal with the state, deal with authority in a totally different way. That the way that, as you talk about, black bodies are policed is fundamentally different than the way that white bodies are policed. Um, and because of that, it can be hard for, it has been hard, I think, for, for white people to understand exactly what's happening because they don't um, engage with power. They don't engage with the state in the same way um, that one would in a black community. And I, this, this t- takes me back to another amazing scholar, philosopher, thinker, uh, actually psychologist from Martinique, a, a student of the aforementioned Amy Césaire, and this is Franz Fanon, um, who comes from Martinique but gets educated in Paris, eventually goes to Algeria and becomes um, active in the Algerian revolution against, um, against France. And he writes a series of books about the colonial experience, but he's doing this from the perspective of a, of a, a psychologist. He wants to understand the psychology of empire, the psychology of oppression, what it does to live under this sort of oppression. And he's, he's able to make several observations about what it means to live in this way. And so I just want to read one quote. This is from his book, A Dying Colonialism. He says, quote, in the capitalist countries, a multitude of moral teachers, counselors, and quote unquote, bewilderers separate the exploited from those in power. In the colonial countries, on the contrary, the policeman and the soldier, by their immediate presence and their frequent and direct action, maintain contact with a native and advise him by means of rifle butts and napalm not to budge. It is obvious here that the agents of government speak the language of pure force. The intermediary does not lighten the oppression, nor seek to hide the domination. He shows them up and puts them into practice with the clear conscience of an upholder of the peace. Yet he is the bringer of violence in the home and into the mind of the native. And all that although about places like Algeria in the 1950s, speaks just as well in many ways to the experience of, of black people in this country for decades and Absolutely. decades and decades. Absolutely. You know, in fact, I would even say, Josh, you know, that psychology of force that Fanon was talking about. Yeah. Think about it. We refer to the police as the police force. Yeah. Right. No coincidences, right? No. It's designed that way. All right. Well, hopefully you guys got something out of this. It was, I think, important for us to discuss this, uh, important for us, I think, to just put our thoughts together about what's happening and how we can understand it historically. Please contact us if you've got questions, if you want, uh, you know, reading, um, it, uh, you want recommendations for stuff to read. If you uh, want to, you know, take us to task for something we missed out on, you can email us at historyagainstthegrain at gmail.com. You can, uh, you can talk to us through our Twitter or our um, Instagram 
H-I-S-T-A-T-G, History Against the Grain. And um, we will be talking to you again next week where we'll see where events take us, right? Absolutely. This is live TV, so stay well, everyone. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you